This is an ABC podcast. Hello, Hilary Harper here, broadcasting from Nam. Sex, food and shelter. We're looking at our most basic human needs today. If you're old enough to remember when the contraceptive pill came in, you'll know how revolutionary it was for managing our fertility and sexuality. But these days, many women are ditching the pill because of its links to depression. Where does that leave us? And later in the program, what food is best when you're on a date and some on-the-ground approaches to crippling housing shortages. Gird your loins for some big discussions on Life Matters. Anecdotally, increasing numbers of young women are rejecting hormonal contraception, sometimes in favour of fertility awareness apps or just plain old withdrawal. And these methods are far less effective than the pill. But people want options that are less likely to affect their moods. What an interesting public health landscape that makes for. Let's see what the research says on this and what the options are if you do want to avoid hormonal contraception. Associate Professor Caroline Gervich is a clinical neuropsychologist and Deputy Director of Monash Alfred Psychiatry Research Centre. Uh, Caroline, welcome to you. Hello, Hilary. Great to have you with us. And Dr Claire Bormer is Medical Director of Family Planning New South Wales. Claire, Hello. Hi. Hi. Claire, let's start with you. We're hearing there's this trend away from the contraceptive pill. Is that what you're seeing? Uh, it's it's hard to be sure, but certainly there are some moves and we do see women and people needing contraception coming into our clinics uh, with concerns about hormone hormonal contraception or wanting lower hormone doses in their contraception, um, perhaps because of things they've seen on social media or heard from friends or read online uh, with concerns about hormonal side effects. So is there any data on this? And I guess why or why not? In terms of data on side effects from hormonal contraception? No, data on what people are choosing and why. It's hard to get a a good overview of uh, contraceptive use in Australia. There are uh, studies that look at different measures in terms of uh, pill prescriptions on PBS data and and, uh, IUD insertions and and things. So there is a a bit of a trend we have seen in some studies of a decline in pill use over the years, but also um, slight increases in long-acting reversible contraceptive methods as well, like uh, the contraceptive implant or IUDs. Um, So there there are, you know changing patterns in contraceptive use in Australia, for sure. Is it your sense that the long-acting hormonal contraceptives are replacing the pill or they're just there's an uptick in them but also a downtick in the pill? It's hard to be sure whether it's replacing it, you know, one for one or whether there, there certainly are people we see who are using withdrawal, as you said, or interested in um, fertility awareness methods, sometimes using apps and things. Um, so it's probably a bit of both, I'd say, but it's hard to be. Uh, concrete on that. Mm, which is itself unfortunate. We'll talk a little bit more uh, in a moment about the uh, the other methods that you mentioned and how effective they are. Claire, mm. is it your sense that this it's younger women or older women or, or what age group do you think might be turning away from the pill? I think, well, certainly anecdotally in patients I see, I see women in, in sort of the extremes of reproductive age, uh, younger women who are keen to avoid hormones sometimes, the things they've seen on things like TikTok, which they may be more active on. But um, certainly in the perimenopausal period, sometimes patients are concerned about hormones and, and their effects on, on their bodies and their mental health. And, and so there are probably, you know, it's across the board, there'd be people um, who have, you know, different concerns about, about hormonal side effects. And Claire, with the the social media users, are they seeing things on TikTok that are steering them away from the pill for like wellness reasons or is it specifically a mental health thing that's turning up in your conversations? Look, it's, it's, there's lots of reasons people are, are concerned and I must say there's probably a lot of misinformation online as well. Uh, we do know that hormonal contraception, you know, there are sometimes some associations with uh, various side effects that we see but we, we don't really have the evidence to say that it causes, you know, mood disturbance for instance. Um, there are lots of confounding factors and lots of factors that can influence people's moods um, and we do see that some people seem to be more sensitive to the hormonal you know, side effects potentially, but a lot of other people still use hormonal contraceptives without these issues and are very happy having effective contraception. So I think there's there's a lot of information out there online and there's lots of concerns that people come in and see us with and, and part of our job is really uh, giving people sort of 
back to the evidence and what information we can provide uh, and then letting people make informed decisions about what their priorities are and what they want to try. And it's still, unfortunately, a bit of a space of trial and error sometimes to see what works best for an individual. We're getting lots of texts on this. Mandy from Mission Beach, I've been on the pill for 40 years, no problems at all. Janice says, I was on the pill for decades and then got breast cancer. At no point was I warned about the increased risk of breast cancer from long-term use of the pill. And someone else says, try celibacy. Works for me. I'm tired of food tasting funny and being flustered with responsibility. That's an interesting set of side effects. Uh, Caroline Gervich, what impacts do hormonal contraceptives have on mental health? How much do we know about this now? So there have been a few studies that have looked at associations between hormonal contraceptives and depressive symptoms. Probably the biggest one was a Danish registry study that looked at the association between hormonal contraception and depression, and that was in over a million women, and they did see an increase in the use of antidepressants in people who started using hormonal contraceptives, as well as an increase in the diagnoses of depression. But there have been other studies that have like a Swedish um, registry-based study, also a very large study, and they didn't find that association between combined oral hormonal contraceptives and depressions. So the evidence is mixed, but it certainly suggests it's a subset of women who are sensitive to the pill in terms of their adverse mood effects and in terms of developing depression. So it's for some women who have either a sensitivity, a genetic sensitivity, or women who may have experienced trauma and they're more sensitive to hormone changes, those women potentially are more likely to develop depressive symptoms. But it's not a blanket rule. It's just for some women. It did seem that that study was saying that there was a heightened risk among adolescents too. Is that something that you have noted? Yes, indeed. So that study did show that the biggest risk was for women who are aged between or girls really aged between 15 and 19 years so it is the adolescent group that are more sense seem to be more sensitive to the increased risk of depression I know there's a professor of uh, psychiatry at Monash called Jayashree Kulkarni who's been writing on this on the conversation among other places, and she yes, was suggesting. I work with oh, you do, and yes. uh, she was suggesting that uh, particular kinds of hormonal contraceptives might ha- pose a greater risk. Could you tell us about that? Whether it's sure. the estrogen or, or progesterone ones. So it's thought to be the progesterone component of the pill that is more likely to increase the risk of depression in some women. The estrogen component is actually supposed to have beneficial effects on our mood and on the way that we think. So it's, it's definitely different pill types have got different types of progesterone, progestin and different types of estrogen in them. So it's the certain pill types with certain progestins in them for some women are more likely to increase the risk of depression. And Caroline, what about uh, effects where there are these side effects? What about the effects on, uh, on cognition and, and stress? Yes. So again, it depends on the pill type. So the estrogen component of the pill is, there's been studies that show it improves our verbal memory. So that's memory for things that we've heard, again, in some women. And the progestin in the pill, the older pills have got progestins in them that are structurally a bit more like testosterone, and they're thought to improve our visual spatial memory. So our ability to read maps, for example. And the newer pill types that have got a different type of progesterone in them um, are thought to adversely or or make our visual spatial skills worse. So these are studies that have been done at big group levels and so they're pretty subtle with the changes that we see, but they do impact the way we think. We know that hormones are active in our brains and they can impact the way that we think. And you also mentioned stress and there's been quite a few studies now that have shown that hormonal contraceptive users have a blunted response to stress. So normally when we have stress, we have an increase in our stress hormone cortisol. But for people who use the oral contraceptive pill, they have less of this increased cortisol response when they're faced with stress. So they are less stressed in in the face of stressors. And Caroline, how permanent are these effects when they happen to people? Look, we don't know. There haven't been really good longitudinal studies, but the studies that have been done show that they're probably pretty temporary. So you see an effect on thinking skills, even between the sugar pill um, sugar pill phase of the pill cycle and the active pill phase. So you see an improvement, say, in that verbal memory in when you compare women who are taking the sugar and the active phase of the pills.
There's also, I guess, the question, Caroline uh, uh, Gervich, that, you know, uh, women who aren't on the pill or people who aren't on the pill also uh, have hormonal uh, effects on their body. What do we know about the effects of hormones that are produced naturally by the body? Yeah, absolutely. So across the natural menstrual cycle, we have fluctuations in our hormone levels. And these also impact the way we think and the way that we feel. So women before they get their periods in the premenstrual phase where you see a natural increase in progesterone can have mood changes. Some women are particularly sensitive to these natural fluctuations in hormones. And so you can see changes in um, our mood and the way we process emotions just across the natural menstrual cycle. And then again at menopause where we see rapid fluctuations in our hormones, you can also see changes in mood and in the way that people think across that phase of life where there's also hormone changes. So many people with varying perspectives on the pill texting into our conversation today. You're hearing from Associate Professor Caroline Gervich, who's Deputy Director of the Monash Alfred Psychiatry Research Centre and a clinical neuropsychologist, and Dr Claire Bormer, who's the Medical Director of Family Planning New South Wales. Uh, Belinda in Brisbane says, I started taking the pill at 16 when I started having sex, no discussion of side effects or other options, stopped taking it at 23 and felt like a new woman, alive for the first time, she says. I had a libido, lost weight, my mental health and relationships improved. I also loved understanding the way my natural cycle worked, the normal fluctuations in energy and libido. She says this is never discussed. And Belinda goes on, I find the discussion around this incredibly patronising and gaslighting of women's actual experiences. Contraception is a feminist issue and it's so often reduced to medical terms. Let's have a look at some of the other options available. Uh, Claire Bormer, the, the rise of menstrual and fertility tracker apps as we are hearing, could be part of this shift away from the pill. How accurate are those methods of preventing pregnancy? It's hard to comment on specific apps. There's quite a range of apps out there and they've been designed to do different things. Some of them are more designed just to allow you to track your period so you can remember when your last one was and not really designed for contraceptive use, although maybe used by people uh, in that way. Other ones have been designed more as a you know, for contraceptive use, one like the Natural Cycles app. But because they rely on these fertility awareness methods, which are methods of contraception that have been around for a very long time, you know, looking at uh, your natural signs and symptoms, uh, which might give you a clue to when you're fertile each month, um, as well as looking at the calendar, um, you know, they require quite a lot of dedication on the part of the user. There's a lot of variability and factors that can influence how effective those methods uh, can be. And so there's quite a range of efficacy for sort of fertility awareness methods that we cite ranging from sort of around 75, 76% to over 90% with perfect use. But there's so many factors that influence it that it's very hard to give um, one number of efficacy for these for these uh, ways of managing your fertility. Yes, and only one's been approved by the TGA as a contraceptive method, hasn't it? So that's part of the mix. Absolutely, yep. Claire, what other hormone-free options are there and how effective are they compared to the pill? So if someone really is wanting to get off hormonal contraception and, and but still use something very effective, the copper interuterine device is a highly effective method of contraception that's um, over 99% effective uh, and has no hormones at all. Um, other methods would include things like condom use. Uh, so there's the internal or female condom and the external or male condoms. Um, abstinence, which one of your listeners mentioned, uh, which won't suit everyone. Or there's the more permanent methods, including things like tubal ligation and vasectomy, which obviously uh, people have to be pretty clear in their decision that they don't want future fertility when they're going for those choices. Yes, Roshana's texted in, Claire, and she says the best contraception is vasectomies for fertile males. This is a simple, reversible plumbing. Let's not pretend we haven't known for 50 years that the pill's been bad for women. But reversing a vasectomy can be a bit more complicated than that, that, can't it, Claire? We do tend to counsel that, you know, if people are getting a vasectomy, that they're planning on it being a permanent method. You know, there's no guarantee that it will be reversible and it, it can be challenging and expensive to try. So I would I would generally only recommend that for someone who's pretty clear that they're not wanting um, any, you know, future pregnancies. Yeah. yeah. Other texts very strongly supporting uh, male responsibility in contraception. One says, I'm a bloke. The idea of chemical forms of contraception seems odd and unfair to me. I've had a vasectomy and believe couples should consider this over hormonal contraceptives. That's for longer term couples. And Peter in Sydney says, condoms. Why does men's responsibility never come into this discussion? As a gay man who lived through the AIDS pandemic, says Peter, I have zero 
zero patience for straight men failing to engage with this. Definitely part of the mix. Dr Claire Bormer, many women report feeling unheard by their doctors or having concerns about side effects dismissed, or as we've been hearing on our text line, not not feeling that they've been properly informed about the side effects in the first place. How does that affect their willingness to seek out other options in your view? It's a really important point and I think, you know, we, we need to really, as as clinicians, make sure we're hearing women and, and hearing people coming to talk to us about the contraception, their concerns and what they, you know, believe they're having in terms of side effects and listening to that. Um, you know, just because we don't always have evidence of causation for a particular side effect, as we're hearing there are sort of trends and associations that are clear and some women do seem more sensitive to hormonal side effects. So certainly hearing people is important and allowing, you know, providing that sort of evidence information so people can make informed decisions about what they want to use. Sometimes, you know, with good intentions, I think medical professionals' priorities for a person presenting to them may be slightly different than that person's and we've got to find sort of a shared decision-making approach and allow people to make decisions for themselves provided it's safe about their contraceptive choices. So, you know, the clinician's concern may be this teenager not getting pregnant whereas a teenager may be more concerned about side effects that they've been experiencing and so it's really important that we we hear the person in front of us and hear what their concerns are and, and try different options at times, uh, provided that they're aware of, you know, the potential reduction maybe in efficacy of their method or the other side effects or benefits of the different methods that they're looking at so they can make informed choices. But certainly these conversations, there's a lot of information to provide. There's a number of contraceptive options to talk about now. So sometimes it's hard to fit it all into a short consult, um, but I think it's really important to hear people and and have those longer discussions if needed so people feel engaged and, and able to make good choices. Well, and given that we heard that link suggested by that large Danish study earlier that, that Caroline was talking about between uh, adverse effects on people's mental health and being an adolescent on the pill, mm. do you think there's there's room for some change in prescribing guidelines, Claire, when, when it comes to younger women, younger people who want contraception? I think it's really uh, challenging and we really still have to keep it on a, you know, individual basis to work out what the best option for the person in front of me is going to be. We know that people who are less than 25 are more likely to have unintended pregnancies Um and, you know, that's a significant thing for, uh, for anyone, let alone a young person, and, and we want to help support people to avoid that if they're not wanting a pregnancy. Um, and obviously an undetected pregnancy could have significant impacts on people's mental health and, and everything else. Um, and, and the pill, you know, sometimes it's the first thing people reach for. It's what their mother's used. Um, it's what they've been told to go and go and ask for at the, at the um, doctors. Um, and there are benefits to the pill sometimes for adolescents in terms of managing probably menstrual pain or troublesome periods during sports carnivals or, or um, acne issues. There's a lot of beneficial non-contraceptive side effects or benefits from the pill. So I wouldn't dismiss it altogether, but certainly being mindful of potential, you know, mood effects in, and mentioning to people if they have any concerns about side effects that they're having with a particular contraceptive method uh, to come in and we can look at other choices and they're not, they're not stuck on it is a really important part of the discussion. Um, and I think long-acting reversible methods, things like uh, the intrauterine devices, either the copper one that I mentioned, or there are low hormone uh, dose options, um, the Marina IUD or Kylina now, uh, which, you know, traditionally may not have been thought of as a first line option for adolescents, but can be really effective options. And we, we know now that they are um, great options for young people as well. So sometimes broadening the discussion to think about other choices is important as well. Yes. And as you mentioned, the copper one has no hormones in it. So that's a form of IUD that that's is a right. non-hormonal no. form. Uh, yeah, that's right. It, I mean, it's copper and it has no hormones, so none of the hormonal side effects, but sometimes people do experience heavier or longer periods. So still thinking about, you know, side effects is important. And for a young person with heavy periods, that may not, once they realise that, they may, you know, opt for a low hormone dose IUD. They may be sometimes uh, going through the different things to expect. Um, sometimes lets mm. people leave the consultation, sometimes with a slightly different choice than maybe what they entered thinking they might want. Yeah, it's always good to have a discussion and, and broaden your view about things. Uh, Caroline Gervich, is, is it a good thing that there's more information circulating about the potential links between the pill and mood and, and other options now? Uh, absolutely. I think having education and information out there is a great thing as long as people don't revert to the TikTok-style information that might not be evidence-based. So I think it's just about 
people having good conversations with their prescribing physicians about their choices and being aware of if they do notice mood effects once they're on the pill, being able to make that connection themselves or discuss that with their doctors. Indeed. Yeah, I was struck by one description of, you know, if, if something's 75% effective as some fertility tracker apps and the withdrawal method are, then that means quite a few people using it are going to get pregnant by the end of the year. <laughs> Worth keeping in mind. Look, thank you both so much for joining us on Life Matters. It's been great chatting to you. Thank you Pleasure. very much. Associate Professor Caroline Gervich, a clinical neuropsychologist and Deputy Director of Monash Alfred Psychiatry Research Centre, and Dr Claire Borman, Medical Director of Family Planning in New South Wales. A lot of people wanting to chat to us about this on the text line today. Fu says, I have personal experience of the mood impacts the pill has on me, and as a result, I've never been on the pill. Uh HK says, excuse me, I would really like to see more inclusive language used in this conversation. Not all people with uteruses are women. And I really appreciated how our guests often use the word people instead of women. Uh, Eve says, I'm a trans person who takes a progesterone pill. Another person says, my sister was affected by the pill, so switched to the Billings method. Uh, This is also called cervical mucus method, uh, my producer informs me, similar to the rhythm method, one of those ways of tracking your fertility across your cycle. And our texter says uh, her sister ended up having four abortions, which would have been time-consuming and inconvenient at the very least. My brother was a Billings baby. There were many around at the time. And finally, this text, I'm nearly 60, but when I was 17 and went on the pill, I had a severe mood change from level and positive to angry and teary. I felt like I was going mad. I talked to my GP. She immediately gave me contraceptive alternatives and vitamin B. And within about two weeks, I felt like a ton of bricks had been lifted off my shoulders. I had such a quick response. I have no doubt the mood changes were pill-related. As we heard, it's a little hard to pick through the science, but a lot of views coming through on text today. Now, if you're looking to get into a situation where you might need contraception, look no further. We're talking food and dating next on Life Matters. Hi, Waleed Ali here from the minefield. Scott Stevens over there. Every now and again, we abandon regular programming on the minefield and do a thing that Scott insists we call the art of living. What is it, Scott? Well, basically, we take works of art, things that are meant to be taken seriously. It might be a television show, it might be a novel, it could even be a painting. And we try to subject them to a little bit of, let's say, moral scrutiny, but also hold up our own lives to their piercing gaze. You can find it by following the minefield on the ABC Listen app. And I'll work on the name. I love to start a discussion with the sound of frying, sizzling things. Some meals matter more than others, don't they? That sad little salad in your work bag, not so much. But eating out on a date with someone you want to impress or at the very least see again, you want that food to be right. Alice Zaslavsky is a food writer, cook, educator. Her latest cookbook's called In Praise of Veg and she's a regular here on Life Matters. Alice, great to chat to you again. Always a pleasure, Hilary. Let's get that elephant out of the room first. Is there any truth to the idea that certain foods are aphrodisiacs? That is probably more likely to be fiction than fact, Hilary, but it is about sexual suggestion. So if something is uh, supposedly an aphrodisiac, it's about how it makes you feel and what you think it does. It's that psychosomatic response. So when you're eating oysters, the intention that you set is that that food is sexy, ergo, suddenly you're in the mood. Yeah, interestingly, I once coughed up an oyster on the lapel of my my date, so it doesn't have that association for me. But everyone's different. Uh, And I guess, you know, there are such weird theories about what's going to get things going in the bedroom department when it comes to food, aren't there? There certainly are. And unfortunately, some of them have been extremely detrimental to our ecosystem. You know, things like uh, elephant tusk and rhinoceros horn have been hunted, poached because of their supposed aphrodisiac qualities, you know, their their, um, improvements in virility. And yet there is no truth to these myths. So, you know, harming these animals for absolutely no reason is just terrible. Uh, Something perhaps that is a little bit horn shaped though like ginger that can stimulate blood flow so that is probably a much more kind of cruelty free option if you are looking to uh, find a food that that makes you feel hot (laughs) yes indeed well and if you're lucky with your the particular bulb of ginger you get it might look like the clitoris you know that amazing complicated uh, structure (laughs) inside us alice do you have any hard and fast rules about date food what it should be and absolutely should not be 
Look, as you know, I'm an equal opportunity eater. So if somebody wants to take someone else on a date where everything is soupy and slurpy, uh, you know, do that at your own peril. But if you both enjoy getting messy, then give it a go. It's about considering the other person, which is what dating's all about, really. So do ask about dietaries. Do consider what it is that they're into. And perhaps you don't have to take them to the most expensive restaurant every time either. Well, we've had got a text saying my friend took his first date to a Scottish restaurant, McDonald's. <laughs> but then we got this beautiful story, you know, when you talked about things that were a bit messy, Alice, on Facebook, Adam said, we were at a nondescript Chinese hole-in-the-wall place where my partner ordered roast Peking duck with a side of Chinese broccoli. I watched in quiet amazement while he carefully deboned the succulent pieces of mahogany-glazed bird with the skill of a surgeon before offering them up on my plate. Some 16 years later and this table ritual still doesn't faze him. Yeah, he's a keeper, Adam. That's very good that news. That is Perfect. And such evocative language too. I love the idea of sharing food on a date. So think about going to a place, perhaps a little hole in the wall, a dumpling place where you're offering each other portions and and bits and bobs. And that might be a great conversation starter. Well, yes, though, food, I mean, dating can be pretty anxiety inducing. And then if you add food into the mix, that can really up the ante, can't it? It can get messy. I'm thinking of Julia Roberts flinging the snail across the room, pretty woman. <laughs> Let alone that oyster on your lapel, Hillary. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but it's also about uh, testing the waters of how does that other person deal with adversity? So if things get messy, do they scrunch up their nose or do they just go with it? How do they treat the waiter or waiter? Waitress, you know, that I think is probably the first sign of whether a person is a keeper. You know, are they polite? Uh, do they ask the right questions? Do they ask you the right questions too as you're ordering? And do they have the same approach to you uh, with garlic? Yes. Uh, I mean, I, being uh, from Georgia, am all about garlic. So <laughs> I double down on garlic. But just ask yourself, is the other person going to eat garlic as well? Because if you both eat it, then there's no such thing as garlic breath. But there just, just ha- has to be, you know, two to tango. Indeed. We're speaking date food, date night food, whether that's at your place or out somewhere with Alistair Slavsky. How important was food and cooking for you when you started dating your now husband, Alice? Because you, you are entrenched in that world. I am. And, you know, when we first started dating, I was a teacher, but I was always a foodie. So uh, I think that was something that certainly connected us quite quickly because he was also into food, you know, to the point where he was reading restaurant reviews and was taking us to really fancy places because he wanted to impress me. And then one night he just kind of looked forlorn and he said, "Um, can we please stop going to these places because I'm broke. (laughs) And what's really funny is is that I thought that he wanted to go to those places. So having that conversation was actually really useful because after that we then changed our approach and we actually started cooking for each other and you know over a decade later we're still together. Well and that raises the question of who pays on a date doesn't it? We've we've got this text through Alice that says if the person asks you out and then complains about paying dump them immediately (laughs) in capital letters. That's a tricky one in for a lot of people isn't it? I couldn't agree more. I think it's thinking about um, the etiquette of it, who actually uh, decided where to go, who set the date, whoever set the date should offer to pay. And chances are the other party will say, why don't we split it? And then it's up to you whether you decide to pay for the whole thing or whether you do go Dutch. But again, it's all a dance, isn't it? And it really kind of is that social glue and that indicator of whether that person has the same values as you. Well, yeah, when you say set the date, do you mean choose the venue, whether it's expensive or not, or the person who did the asking out? Because some people can feel that if they offer to pay and they've asked you out, they're they're basically buying your company. It can feel a bit uncomfortable. You're not wrong. So it is that dance, isn't it? And it's about feeling comfortable enough to have all of those kind of questions out in the open. So if you've set the date, perhaps the other person suggests where you eat and then perhaps you offer, you know, it's kind of, it's got to be that um, step one, two. You both have to be in on it, I suppose. Yeah, so that is to me one of the reasons why you put food into the dating equation is because it's a really great test of values. We're speaking with Alice Slavsky, food writer, cook, educator, and getting her thoughts on dating and food, whether that's cooking at your place or heading out for the night. Was there a particular meal, Alice, that impressed you with your partner or that you cooked to impress him? 
I think it was more about um, what the cooking process was very kind of um, cohesive. You know, I would be cooking, he would be washing up um, or cleaning up behind. So it felt like um, it felt like we could probably be a really good team. Um, if I think about dishes that really probably impressed, maybe something like a roast chicken. And I know I'm not alone in that. I remember reading about Miranda Kerr impressing her now husband with roast chicken and even cooking that same roast chicken for her wedding. <laughs> which is just, you know, it's it's funny how dishes can evoke that and they can be so simple too. Yeah, I can't, I can't imagine her doing the personal cooking of the, all the chickens <laughs> that, for the wedding. In the sure. Dior dress, yes. I know. <laughs> Hilarious. Well, it's all tricky that though, isn't on it? the sleeves. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, later obviously when you're eating, sure, but not in the <laughs> cooking phase. But what about when you're deciding what to cook? I just am having those Bridget Jones moments with the blue soup and the velouté, various things. Mm. Keep it simple. As Nigella Lawson always says, don't choose a dinner party or a date night to bring something new to the table. Make your hard and fast kind of tried and true recipes, something that uh, you have a story behind, but something that you've tried a couple of times at least. And please no blue velouté. <laughs> no. Some lovely texts coming in, Alice. First date, a, fragr- a bowl of fragrant rich bun ho hue on a Hanoi street and then a couple's massage, says Kale. That does sound nice. Uh, somewhere quiet lets you know if they're a noisy eater. Ooh, yeah, that's that could be key. And someone else says, we went to a dumpling place before a naff movie, shared dumplings and garlic prawns. Yum. Yep, you're on the same page. And Alice, I have to read this dished out to you. We were talking about particular dishes that impress people. Ben on Facebook says, Thai lime chili lamb salad. It was so good that I won her affections that night and was asked to make it for the meet the family lunch later in the year. That's when you know you've made it, haven't you? Nailed it. <laughs> yeah, nice one. So uh, are there any particular recipes that you would recommend to people who are maybe a bit nervous about cooking for a date at their house? Think about hand food. So something that you can kind of um, make at the table together. And that way, you know, perhaps you didn't realise that they weren't that into coriander. They can leave the coriander off without having to have that awkward conversation of, oh, I don't eat that. I don't eat this. Um, you know, but perhaps it might be make your own tortillas or, you know, it could be a bansu, the um, the, the uh, pancake, uh, you know, that you fill up with various different vegetables and delicious, you know, prawns. It really, again, should speak to the kind of food that you would expect to be eating most of the time. You don't have to get too fancy. That That's kind of the key. You don't have to go out and buy a lobster and make a thermidor. <laughs> it's yeah. 2022. Lobster mac and cheese was a weird thing that came up on, on the internet when you Google date night food. Lobster mac and cheese. Okay. Uh, lovely text here about prawns. I had a lovely dinner date with a, a a very long time ago, I ordered prawns and my date was very impressed at how I ate them. He called it a delight to watch me eating and he uh, he said, I eat very dainty. It was so cute and I never forget that when I eat prawns. So I'm not sure whether that relationship lasted, but it's obviously left a lasting impression. There's it some, certainly has. <laughs> yeah. Another interesting thing I found in my extensive internet research for this, Alice, was there's some <laughs> controversy about when it's too soon to cook for a date. And one suggestion was never cook for the at your house before date six. I think the argument was that it would set up some kind of unsustainable, I am your domestic labour goddess kind of thing. But date six, what are your thoughts on that? I think that's way too long, Hillary. I'm not into all of these rules and regulations. If you are a confident cook or if you're somebody that expresses yourself through food, don't wait till date six. That means that you're relying on other people to make deliciousness when you could do a better job at home. Uh, but do perhaps set some uh, expectations in advance. And actually, you know, it's all about delivery. So when you bring the food to the table, bite your tongue before you say, oh, you know, this wasn't right or that wasn't right. Just the fact the actual act of cooking for somebody is enough. So just serve it up with a big smile and they'll enjoy it because you made it for them. And if the mood lighting is right, they might not even notice what it looks like. It could be blue. (laughs) (laughs) Just a little tinge. Yeah. (laughs) Always a joy to talk to you. Uh, Good luck with the next meal, whatever it may be. And uh, thanks for your time. Cheerio, Hilary. Alice Seslavsky, cook, educator, food writer. She's got a giant, colourful cookbook called In Praise of Veg, and you hear her regularly here on Life Matters. Now, there are over a million ghost homes in Australia sitting empty in the biggest rental crisis that we've ever seen. Some ideas to tackle that next. It begins with a kidnapping. A baby. A girl. 
Grace will be happier elsewhere anyway. And connects eight strangers on one dramatic day. I told her I will always protect you. Boy, huh? chill boys, huh? relax. Eight new writers, eight stories, one city. I hope in the next life I get to be your daughter again. The critically acclaimed film, Here Out West. All I know is I don't want to be far from home. Sunday night, August 14 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. Last year, the national rental vacancy rate drip, dipped sorry, to its lowest level on record, 0.9%. And at the same time, the 2021 census showed that over a million houses were empty on census night. That is a lot of unused accommodation. Some local councils are trying to ease the pressure themselves. They're doing letter drops to owners or hiking the rates. Matthew Hatcher is the mayor of Eurobadalla Shire on the New South Wales south coast, and they've been taking some steps in this uh, regard. Matthew, welcome to Life Matters. Good morning, Hilary. How are you? Um, well, thanks. Give me a sense of the scale of the housing crisis in your shire. Yeah, I think uh, I think the biggest thing there is, is that it is a crisis. We've uh, come off the back of the 2019-2020 Black Summer bushfires. We lost 500 houses in our shire here. Uh, 500 houses to the Shire to the south of us as well, and and hundreds to the north also. Uh, just off the back of that, obviously COVID hit, and we had a huge uh, supply chain issue. Um, you know, lockdowns obviously slowed the process. Inundation of DAs trying to rebuild as well. So all those things compiled uh, with the floodings and everything else that we uh, we found ourselves with. Uh, House prices doubling over the last two years, rental prices going up 30 to 40% in most areas, and, and obviously a, a lack of supply, people moving from the cities down here. So it has become quite a crisis in, in our area. Yeah, so you've got houses filling up and you can't rebuild the ones that were lost. You wrote a letter asking out-of-town property owners to consider renting out their property, so people who have a second home or a holiday home. Uh, how many empty homes are there in your area that that, that was meant to tackle? Well, unfortunately, we lead the state in uh, these ghost houses that we talk about. Now, our, our area is quite a tourist destination. Uh, we're two hours from Canberra, three and a half hours from Sydney. Uh, so, you know, in those peak holiday periods, we, we need a lot of those short-term rentals to house the, the tourists that come here. And a lot of the houses are taken up by family homes, people who have been coming here for many years over those holiday periods. And, and obviously, we want to encourage them to continue. But I guess the letter was aimed at those that might have multiple investment properties and might be using them for those sort of short-term accommodations to just think about the community long-term and maybe free up one of those or you know whatever they could do, anyone that could do anything to, to get a bit more supply on the market for us, just to take a bit of pressure off. And, Matthew, and we, sorry. You know, yeah. Go for oh, it. Well, we've, we had great response from it. I've got to be honest. Uh, we had uh, well over 40 houses come back onto the market in the rental market. Now, the letter asked for people to contact agents alone uh, to, to go through the normal, um, I guess, protocols of, of renting your house out. So security was there and everything else. And, and and so we don't have exact numbers, but we know council alone had over 100 phone calls and emails of people wanting to help. We had houses being offered up for three to six months from people uh, that were fully furnished for free for people who might be struggling. We know DCJ got over 10 houses back onto the social housing market from it as well. Um, we've also got some infrastructure projects that are just finished up here, um, big projects. So we've had some more houses come back on from that as well. But overall, it's been a great success. And Matthew, wh- why do you think it was so successful, just the individual homeowners letter drop? Did, did people just not know how big the problem was until it was laid out for them or didn't know how they could be part of the solution? I think it's both of those things. Really, uh, you know, I think over the last couple of years, we've all had our head down and really in our in our space trying to just survive the whole country. Uh, and, you know, down here in particular, we've got a lot of Canberrans and after the bushfires, there's there's nowhere that stood up more to support this region and come down here and spend money and, and uh, support every local business was, was, was those tourists and those people who, who have been coming here for many years. So I think just, uh, you know, really just pointing it out to them was one thing, but also I think overall, uh, you know, I think people want to help. And if they found that that's the way they could do it, and some people just couldn't do it, you know, financially, they, it is t- sometimes taking a bit of a hit and you might lose 20, 30% on your, your investment for the, for a year or two. But I 
think for the long term for the community and, and uh, for this region, it, it's something that we had to, at least it's something we had to trial. And there's lots of other measures that we're looking at doing and we're tra- talking to the state government about things that we think could help take a, alleviate a little bit of that pressure. But yeah, I think people just want to help where they can. Yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it, in coastal towns because sometimes you might uh, have that income coming into individuals from short-stay accommodation, but when the tourists come, there's no one to make their coffees and no one to serve their meals at restaurants because no one can afford to work and live there. Yeah, I mean, my rent alone has gone up over $200 a week in the last wow. year. It, it is something that's uh, hit everyone down here. And while it's great, you know, it's great to have this this money coming in and this region being promoted, especially post-bushfires, you know, to see, see the amount of money that's coming in and being spent. But that's right. We, we don't have space for staff. You know, council have many vacancies on our books because we, we can't house the people who want to come down here and work. And it goes the same all through the hospitality and tourism industry. You know, everyone's struggling for staff because of that, because uh, there's nowhere to stay. And Matthew, what would you like to see if you could get uh, one or two top things happening to, to ease this housing crisis in your area, what would it be? Well, there's three things we wrote the state government on and, you know, we've got big infrastructure projects that have just happened, just finished up and we've got more that are on the horizon as well. We've got a regional hospital being built. So we know there's staff coming to build those projects and if the state government knows that, then why aren't we building housing for them now? They can use that worker accommodation and when they leave, we can flip that over into social housing. You know, the, the state government have let us down for many years on this and we are just seeing little wins here and there that we think they could pull levers to help us out. And that's all that we're really asking. They've got a four-year plan, 127,000 houses, what they announced in the budget. We don't know how many of those are going to be put here in this shire. But if there's any little win we can get to alleviate pressure is what we're asking for. And uh, we've wrote to the state government and on everything that we've asked for then to look at, they've said no. So we'll continue that pressure and continue writing. Uh, it's just something that we're going to have to keep doing until you know th- something happens. Mm, indeed. Matthew, thanks so much for your time and all the best for, uh, for pushing that through. Thanks so much, Hilary. Matthew Hatcher, the Mayor of Eurobadalashire on the New South Wales South Coast. So many people texting in with thoughts on this. Uh, How about all the empty hotels around Australia? They say, I'm in a rural area with no rentals, homes for sale, grabbed by investors and three closed pubs. Why don't we open those rooms again? Even with shared bathrooms, surely it's better than living in cars or parks. Cooking can be done as per institution in the great facilities downstairs. Councils need to get on it. Well, what can be done? Uh, Dr. Michael Fotheringham is the Managing Director of AHURI, the Australian Housing and Urban Research Institute. Michael, welcome back to Life Matters. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Uh, Great to chat to you. We've got a few minutes left and I want to look at some of the options that uh, councils are taking or or that are available to us. Victoria introduced a vacant residential land tax in 2017, which was applied to 16 local government areas around Greater Melbourne. Do those kinds of taxes work? Well, they certainly can, and, and, and I've heard calls for, for that sort of program to be rolled out nationally. Um, I, I think, you know, as, as we've just heard, the, the tourist-intensive areas is where this hits hardest. Um, so, you know, approaches that really do encourage releasing property to the private rental market rather than to the short-term letting is, is, is certainly something we'd welcome. How effectively is is that kind of uh, tax working at the moment? I mean, it's been operating in Victoria for a few years. Is it working? That's a great question. Don't have the data. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'd I'd love to be able to tell you that as a result of of that levy, um, X number of properties were were, were made available for for long-term tenants, but unfortunately we don't have that, that data at this stage. What about things like perhaps Brisbane City Council's putting an extra 50% charge on rates bills for short-stay properties? Would that encourage people to put them back on the private rental market? I very much think it would, yes. I mean, one of the things we saw, you know, over the last couple of years with the pandemic, um, you know, a lot of property had left the private rental system to be used as as short-term weddings, so investment properties, instead of being leased out to people to live in. Um, became became used as holiday apartments or holiday houses. And and with the pandemic and the lockdowns that we experienced, particularly in 2020, um, that model didn't work. So a whole lot of property came back into the private rental system. And that actually helped to ensure that, that rents didn't skyrocket during, during the initial phase of the pandemic. But of course, after the lockdowns, the business model shifted again and for a lot of people it was was a lot of investors moved their properties back into short-term letting uh, platforms and so there's a whole exodus from the system of a whole lot of stock 
that coincided with with um, flooding that also took a whole lot of housing out of our national stock. So we've got this enormous shortage, which has led to that vacancy rate you were talking about earlier. Yeah, 10% of all residential dwellings unoccupied, so it's over a million homes. There's well, also this... The, yeah. Well, there's an interesting thing. I mean, a million dwellings sounds incredibly compelling as a, as a figure. In fact, per capita, it's less than at the previous census. And it does include a number of other things. So the short-term letting is certainly playing a, a big and increasing part of that. But there are also derelict houses, houses that, that are currently under renovation or refurbishment or in the process of a knockdown rebuild or other sort of development sites. So there are a number – there's always a lot of properties in that sort of pipeline generally and also properties where there's contested ownership there's an estate dispute or or what have you that that leads to a vacancy and then just the transfer of properties between owners there's a there's a vacant period in between one and the other so there's a little bit of noise in that to consider it's not just a million luxury holiday houses sitting empty while while you know we have a huge homeless problem but it is a growing problem with, with the short-term letting platforms taking over. And certainly in international jurisdictions, we've seen caps on, on or restrictions or, in fact, bans on short-term letting platforms. So there's certainly room to be a bit tighter on them than we are at the moment. Yes, indeed. Well, and if, if you've got those supply chain uh, pipeline blockages, then all those knockdown rebuilds and renovations that you mentioned take longer and therefore exacerbate the problem, don't they? Exactly right. So a knockdown rebuild, what, what might have been a, a nine-month project, you know, a couple of years ago, two, three or four years ago, is now a 15, 18-month project. And that's, you know, that's more time being vacant and, and the displacement effect of, of that household, you know, staying somewhere else is, is, is again, squeezing the market further. Some interesting texts on this, Michael. Justine says, I'm in Hobart. The house next door is permanently empty. My neighbour lives with his girlfriend now and only comes back for an hour each week. And another person says, ghost houses not being used for months on end during a chronic housing shortage bring back squatters' rights and like before, that'll sort it. I'm not sure what golden age they're referring to there, Michael, but it raises that question, doesn't it? Could squatting become more prevalent because it seems like an entirely reasonable approach for people who are desperate. Well, that's right. I mean, you do hear some anecdotal stories, particularly, I think, in, in, in those communities where there are a number of those properties um, of, of owners coming back and finding that someone has been staying um, in, in their home without their knowledge. But I, I don't think we have a, a large-scale squatting um, population in this country that, that, that just hasn't been the history here. Um, we certainly hear about it in Europe, but um, it's, it's much less prevalent in Australia. You, there may be a turning point ahead of us. Well, and speaking of turning points, I mean, we, we've talked before about the approach in Australia to property as an investment as opposed to shelter. Do we need to choose? I mean, is there a way to have our cake and eat it too that, that we can see working in other places around the world, Michael? Well, we need to balance. And and at the moment, the balance is, is heavily in favour of, of treating housing as property, as investment vehicle, as, as a financial wealth accumulation vehicle ahead of housing as shelter. Um, and, um, and and we need to better balance those those different needs. And, and I guess one of the things I, I tend to think of here is that people need shelter. They need a home. Um People choose to invest in property for, for financial gain, but they could also invest in other things. So, you know, there's, there's, there's a degree of, of choice um, here that we're favouring over need, and um, it's tricky. It is indeed. Well, how, what are some ways that you might encourage more people to rent out their homes? Do you need some kind of government subsidy for that? Well, the, the vacancy the vacancy levies is certainly one mechanism. Other sort of constraints on the short term letting, um, you know, have been tried internationally and been quite successful. There's certainly room for that. But I, I think the point that that you made earlier that um, if you want to go and stay at a holiday home and and you know have a have a nice time, you also want to be able to get a coffee when you're there and and have a meal and so on. So the people who are preparing those coffees and meals need somewhere to live, or or you won't have one. Um, and the and the holiday destination becomes a bit less desirable if the key workers aren't aren't housed um, or, or if they're having to travel in, the, the, the constraints of that are quite quite real. So it's actually getting people to think a little more broadly about the sort of communities we're creating, um, not just about individual properties. But as you say, Michael, I mean, if an individual homeowner is probably not going to be swayed by not being able to get one coffee on a, on a trip, there's got to be a broader structure at play, doesn't there, that incentivises more people to shift their properties? 
that's absolutely right and that's that's why those those levies and so on start to um, really start to encourage sharper thinking on this sharper thinking i like that idea just finally michael i think we're going to see a growth in population uh, over the coming years as migration levels return to normal and international students start to return hopefully in their usual numbers is this a problem that's going to get worse or or will many of those people come back to uh, already purpose built uh, properties for example student accommodation in cities well, we do have we do have some vacancy in student accommodation. That's probably the one exception in the system, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne, um, in locations around the universities. There are there's 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 a bit of vacancy there, and in fact, that's protecting our vacancy rate. So, in fact, it's worse than than the numbers you've been hearing um, suggest. But um, one of the real challenges we have in, in building more housing was we have a twofold challenge of, of the supply chain of, of the material goods needed to build housing, timber framing being a key example, um, where international supply chains are, are constrained and will continue to be for for some time yet. So building is going to continue to be slow. But we also have a workforce challenge and, and a traditional solution to, to adding to the workforce for skilled and semi-skilled um, jobs in construction is is through migration, and that's not going to work if those migrants don't have anywhere to live. So we've got to we've got to actually coordinate our policies on this to address what is actually a really complex problem. Yes, indeed, new newish government, possibly a newish approach. We'll wait and see. Dr. Michael Fotheringham, thanks so much for joining us on Life Matters. Thank you very much, Hilary. Michael's the Managing Director of AHURI, the Australian Housing and Urban Research Institute. And you heard earlier, too, from Matthew Hatcher, who's the Mayor of Eurobadala Shire on the New South Wales south coast. Nat Tenchich, wow, this uh, discussion has sparked a bit of response. Absolutely. Um, but, uh, yeah, lots and lots of people have been getting in touch. Um, somebody here says, uh, this problem is terrible tax laws that have made houses an investment tool and not a home. Uh, so Someone uh, having a bit of a problem with the suggestion of squatting as well. Fair enough. Um, that would be very upsetting to find that someone was in your house. It's true. Each, each to their own there. Um, but also so much conversation going on about date dishes. Ah. Um, someone here says, I was dating a lovely guy while I was in prep for bodybuilding competitions. Not able to eat out, but we made some sensational homemade pizzas. And we're no longer together, but we still send each other pictures of our homemade pizza creations. Oh, that's a relationship. Isn't even that if it's sweet? not a romantic one. Yeah. Um, Miriam in Bandura says, for our first ever weekend away, my partner and I went on. We stayed at an Airbnb and agreed to pack food and cook a meal or two together. And when we arrived and started unpacking, we saw that we had brought the exact same set of foods. And that's how we knew it was true love. What can't I survive with for a weekend? Honestly. (laughs) Lynn on Facebook says, to propose, my son made his girlfriend a homemade Aussie meat pie with the words, will you marry me in pastry on the top? And she said, yes. Um, They're the parents of two of my beautiful grandkids now. That is impressive. And Francis says what I would serve on a a date, me, served hot. Yeah, Yeah, baby. You don't want it congealed. That would be entirely the wrong message. No. Thank you, Francis. Sing quite a Bain-Marie for that one. We're also talking about the pill. Uh, Jacqueline says she went off the pill 10 years ago at 35 after a lifetime of use and felt more in control of her moods and mental health without them, uh, has never, ever looked back and uses withdrawal uh, despite the risks, um, is fine with that. But someone else here says, I was on the pill for 35 years, tried two IUDs and uh, ended up getting pregnant. So stay with the pill. Uh, Rosemary says, it's just wild that it changes the way we think, our libido, our long-term fertility, what a minefield. It is. And unplanned pregnancies can happen on any form of contraception, unfortunately. Thank you, Nat. Where are we at with giving in Australia? A lot of us make donations here and there, but it might do us good to examine the assumptions underpinning those acts of charity. The world-renowned ethicist Peter Singer will join me on Life Matters next time to talk about where your dollar can do the most good and whether our tried and tested approaches to philanthropy hold true in the digital age where older ways of giving are having to adapt. Peter Singer will join us to talk about old-fashioned and newfangled charity. Join me then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.